0: The name Quintus Septimius Florens Tertullianus is probably not a name that you know, but you know the shortened version of that name. It's the name Tertullian. Tertullian lived in Carthage, North Africa, right across the Mediterranean from Italy. He was a Roman citizen and lived... Approximately 155 AD to about 240 AD. So he's in the several generations already now after the apostles. Tertullian was trained in Stoic philosophy, but later in his life he converted to Christianity and then renounced the philosophies and the ideologies that he had once studied. Tertullian became famous for his defense of Christianity in those early years, his defense of Christianity against the heretics. In the second and third centuries, there there was a plethora of heresies that sought to malign the true gospel, that introduced all kinds of foreign elements to the Christian faith. And it was Tertullian in that Second and third century, who really uh, took a a very important role, a responsibility in responding to those those heresies. For example, in response to the heresy of a certain individual, a priest known as Sibelius, Tertullian invented the term Trinity to explain the Bible's teaching on the Godhead. Sibelius had taught that. God wears different masks, and sometimes he puts on the mask of the Father, other times he puts on the mask of the Son, other times he puts on the mask of the Holy Spirit, and Tertullian recognized that to be heresy, and so he sought to counter Sibelius, and in that process he, he looked for a term that would, that would summarize what the Bible teaches about the divine essence, the three-in-oneness of the divine essence, and he coined the term Trinitas in Latin, which, from which we get our term Trinity. But Tertullian is not only known for that important, very critical stage in the early church as it relates to the Trinity. He is also well known for a, a very famous statement that he made as he compared Christianity with all the other worldviews circulating around the Roman Empire at the time. In chapter 7 of his book, Prescription Against Heretics, he wrote these words. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Away with all the attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialectic composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. With our faith, we desire no further belief, for this is our palmary, our outstanding faith, that there is nothing which we ought to believe besides. Now, Tertullian asks this question rhetorically, what indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? He's not asking here in that question about geography. Instead, he asks that question because Athens in that day was the city that boasted of the great philosophical schools of the day. If you wanted to go to a place where you could find the highest achievements in human reasoning and learning, you would go to the city of Athens. On the other hand, Jerusalem was the city that represented divine revelation. It was the place around which God had done so much of his redemptive activity and around which God had revealed so much. In particular, the Son of God himself lived and taught there in Jerusalem. So when Tertullian asks the question, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? He is asking a very fundamental question. How do we relate man's best reasoning with the revelation of God, particularly as expressed in the Christian faith? How do we relate those together? In Tertullian's day, this was the main question. He was dealing with all kinds of heresies and, and, and unorthodox ideas because of philosophies and human reasoning and human tradition. Those posed the greatest threats to the purity of the church, and, and Tertullian recognized that. Well, Tertullian wasn't the first. In fact, if we go back about 175 years Prior to Tertullian writing this book, we get to the letter of the Apostle Paul written to the Colossians. And in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, we have a divine statement on this issue. Penned through the Apostle Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit to raise to our attention the, the, the key issue with which we deal In every age of the church's existence, how do we relate the revelation of God in the gospel, in the Christian faith, to the best of human reasoning and religious ideology? The Apostle Paul, in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, states this, See to it that no one takes you captive... Through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, just a little bit about the history or context to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. The church in Colossae was planted not by Paul, we don't have any record that Paul actually visited the city in person but it was planted by an individual named Epaphras he's he's referred to in Colossians chapter 1 verse 7 as Paul writes to this church he says you have learned this gospel truth from Epaphras our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf probably Epaphras had been a disciple of the apostle Paul When Paul had ministered in the city of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, we read of Paul's three-year ministry in the city of Ephesus on the Aegean Sea, and and, and during a large portion of those three years, Paul taught in a certain school. He rented a, a place called the School of Tyrannus, and there Paul taught every day for two years disciples, missionaries. You could call this the first seminary. And those students then went out and Luke records in Acts 19 verses 9 and 10 that the ministry of Paul was so effective that these seminary students, these missionaries dispersed all over Asia Minor and they brought with them the word of the Lord. And likely one of these was Epaphras who made the 120 mile journey to the east from Ephesus to the city of Colossae. He became the founder and pastor of that church. But about eight years later, there were concerning developments in in Colossae and the region around Colossae, and that's what precipitates Paul's letter to them. Paul wrote to the Colossians during his first Roman imprisonment, sometime between 8060 60 and 62. So, like I said, about eight years after the founding of the Colossian church. Epaphras, the founder and pastor of that church, had gone to visit Paul in Rome while Paul was under house arrest. He had been Paul's disciple in Ephesus. Paul had moved on, now was in Rome, and and so Epaphras, who is burdened by the state of the Colossian church, he seeks Paul's counsel there in Rome as Paul was under house arrest. And in particular, Epaphras brought news to Paul about the The climate there in Colossae, the ideological climate, the climate of ideas, particularly ideas related to God and ethics and morality of understanding the necessary behavior that a religious person must have. That climate around the Colossian church was heating up, and there were definite threats to the church. There were those who sought to corrupt the church. And so Epaphras, concerned over the the minds of his beloved congregation, he goes to Rome to get counsel from Paul. And in response, Paul writes to to the Colossian church a, a letter warning about the dangers of ideological syncretism, the dangers of combining the Christian faith with human philosophies and traditions. And the text that we have is is in chapter 2, verse 8, is really the the key point of of Paul's response to this problem. I want to read, actually, from verse 8 down through to the end of the chapter because it helps us understand the kind of ideology that was threatening the church. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands." In the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made them a a public display, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, And not holding fast to the head from which the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, all which refer to things destined to perish with use? in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. That chapter summarizes the ideas that were in play there in the Col- Colossian context. We don't know exactly what kind of, of heretical, unorthodox thinking this was. We can see from this chapter that it appears to be a mixture of, of, of things that are Jewish. You have a reference to the Sabbath and to food laws. It's a reference also to things that have to do with superstitions and folk- folklore, like visions and, and, and the, the worship of angels and so on. It also has things to do with with Greek philosophy, the ethical systems of Stoicism and so on. It's all mixed together in this syncretism that is then promoting itself to the church to say you will really understand God and, and really understand life and really be enlightened if you embrace this, bring it into your thinking, syncretize it with your worldview, you'll be better off. To this, Paul responds, and as I said, verse 8 of chapter 2 is the key command. Let's now look at it and pull it apart and see it and organize our thoughts according to three pegs, uh, if you will, uh, of understanding Paul's exhortation here. First of all, the first one is this. We note the urgent warning. The urgent warning, it's found in the first few words of verse 8. Paul says this, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. When you look at the the language here, even in the English, but especially more in the original, the language here is urgent. Paul sees a very clear and present danger lurking at the door of the Colossian church. And when he says, see to it, the, the language there used in this kind of a context conveys this idea. He, he essentially says, realize that something is hazardous. Watch out. It's, it, this kind of language is used often in these warning sections, and we could look at different warnings that Jesus himself gives with this language, but also warnings that Paul gives. For example, in Philippians, uh, Paul deals with a similar threat in the city of Philippi, which was across the Aegean. Paul says this in Philippians 3 verse 2 using the same language. He says, beware of the dogs. And he's not talking about pit bulls. He's talking about false teachers. He wasn't afraid to call them dogs. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. In each one of these, he is calling upon the readers to realize that there is something hazardous. Danger lies ahead. And he does that to the Colossians. And and in particular, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, what does he mean when he says that no one? Certainly, he is issuing this as a a general principle. But probably he has some, some individuals in mind. These would have been the people that Epaphras described to Paul when Epaphras met Paul there in Rome and said, Paul, help me know what to do with, with, these, with my congregation. Help me know how to minister to them. Help me know how to equip them. These are the threats. These are the individuals that are causing problems. And so when Paul says, let no one, let no one, see to it that no one, probably there is a very distinct group or individual in mind. And what Paul is concerned of here is that this individual or this group of people would take the Colossian believers captive. The the, the word there means to gain control by carrying off as plunder or spoil. It means to exploit or or, or to kidnap. It was a common picture in those days when a a marauding band would move through an area, they could kidnap certain individuals and, and kidnap them to use as slaves. Paul takes that that picture and uses it here as an analogy to say what is, what, is, what is at the door. This is something that could very easily happen, and Paul is not worried about some kind of literal, physical exploitation here. He's not worried that some of them are going to be Kidnapped and taken away from Colossae, he he is worried about a a figurative kidnapping, a a figurative exploitation. And what Paul indicates to us here through this warning, he indicates to us that that ideas are not neutral or docile. We, We sometimes have this idea that ideas just kind of float out there, they're harmless. And we can tinker with them, entertain them, and they're just ideas after all. But Paul, through this warning here, helps us understand that there are ideas, particularly those that relate to God, that relate to our existence, that relate to our understanding of of life, of God's will, of our need, Those ideas are never neutral, they're never docile, they're never harmless, they can captivate and control. That's what they do. In fact, when you really look at our own lives today, consider your life for just a moment, you are what you are today, not because someone did something to you however many years ago, You are what you are today, not because you were just conditioned by these impersonal factors. You are what you are today because of ideas. We are all captive to ideas. We, as we are going to see, were created to be captive. But the issue here with the Colossians, as it is with us, is there are, are many other ideas In the world outside of the Garden of Eden, in this fallen and corrupt world, there are ideas that do take us captive, that want to take us captive. And Paul warns and says, see to it that no one with these ideas takes you hostage. As I said, it wasn't that these ideas promoted the the most extreme forms of evil. No, this was a mixture in in what many could regard as the best of the best. It was a mixture of all the best thinking in the different categories. Jewish religion, folklore, cultural superstitions, Greek philosophy. Take the best of the best. That which is honored and revered in society, take that. And that is the the threat. Not the propositions to the most ugliest things imaginable. Those things aren't the threats. The threats come from those things that look so close to the real. One commentator in his description of what was happening here writes this, these spiritual confidence tricksters against whom they are, to, they are put on their guard did not inculcate a godless or immoral way of life. The error of such teaching would have been readily exposed. Their teaching was rather a blend of the highest elements of religion known to Judaism and paganism. It was, in fact, a philosophy. And understand this, just as a side note before we move on to our our second peg here in understanding Paul's Paul's exhortation. Understand this, and this is so important to take from our entire series, is that the most dangerous thoughts that will come into our minds or come across our paths are are not the most odious ones. They are the most germane ones, The, the, the seemingly docile ones, the ones that look very, very, very closely like gospel truth. Paul is alerting us to that fact. See to it that you don't let those thoughts captivate you. And that leads us to the second peg of this text, and this is where Paul gets into more detail. After he has set forth the urgent warning, now he, he moves to describe the insidious threat he moves to describe the threat. And he says this, he he says that this exploitation, the the means by which this exploitation or this ideological captivity will happen will be through philosophy and empty deception. Now, they're basically just those two main words, uh, philosophy and deception, are, are really describing the same thing. We really don't distinguish them as if they're two different categories here he, he uses two different words really to describe the same thing but what this phrase does is it identifies the means by which we can be taken captive ideologically the means by which this exploitation of our minds takes place Paul describes it as philosophy and empty deception let's look at that in a little bit more detail what is Paul referring to here well, let's take the term philosophy. The term philosophy doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. It's found only here, the, the Greek term, philosophia. It's found only here. And that Greek term is made up of two other words it's made up of the term philos and the term sophia, philosophy. Philos refers to a friend or a lover. And Sophia refers to wisdom. So put those two terms together. What's philosophy? It's the love of wisdom. A philosopher is one who loves wisdom or is a friend to wisdom. Now, before we go too far in in just writing off all philosophy, we have to understand something, that in that day and age, philosophy was used to refer to anything religious. In fact, even the Jewish systems of the the, the Sadducees and the, the Pharisees they would refer to, to the, their ideas as as philosophy the the Jewish historian Josephus for example refers to them as as philosophies the Sadducees and the Pharisees so in that day in general the term philosophy was was used really broadly to refer to anything related to ethics and morality to any discussions about the supernatural and so on and so forth. That was philosophy. Now, probably what was taking place here is that some in Colossae, those who were threatening the church, were actually referring to their teaching as philosophy in an attempt to offer it as respectable as even essential in life, that individual or that group, th- th- that they were offering their teaching, their syncretism of all these different ideas, together with the gospel, they were saying, look, this is philosophy. This is wisdom. This is the love of wisdom. But Paul says, what they call philosophy, you must reject. What is philosophy, in, in their words is something to be rejected because it attempted to correct or to supplement the Christian faith as if the gospel and all that the apostles taught as if it was insufficient. Paul says, be careful. This philosophy is, is, is dangerous. In fact, as we've already noted the danger isn't from clear-cut lies. It comes from half-truths, such as those being promoted in Colossae. It's, it's like a compass, even just a few degrees off. If that compass is off and you begin walking in that direction, initially you may not veer very far off course, but give it enough time and experience and, and you will be led astray. And that's what this philosophy was for the Colossians. It moved the needle just a few degrees initially to get them thinking that Christ was not sufficient, the apostolic message, the Christian faith was not sufficient. We needed these extra analytical tools. We we needed these extra views. The world needed to give us the the additional tools by which we could really understand God and morality and ourselves and our needs and the solutions to our problems. And Paul says, beware of that. Beware. He calls it also empty deception. The word for deception relates to deceitfulness, trickery. It's the same idea that's used in the Greek translation of Genesis chapter 3, uh, of, of chapter three, verse thirteen, Genesis chapter three, verse thirteen, where Eve said the serpent deceived me. It has the idea of trickery. Jesus says in Matthew thirteen, verse twenty-two, that wealth is deceitful. Same word that's used there. It tricks people. Wealth does. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews three, thirteen, says that sin in general is deceitful. It tricks people. The, the, emphasis is, uh, the emphasis on that noun is, is on disguising that which is not real as real. Putting forth something differently than what it really is in substance. That's the idea be, behind that. And that's what was going on. And, and again, that's the threat that we will face. Evil is not going to come to us. And promote itself in its ugliness. But instead, as Satan does, he appears as an angel of light, and so do his ministers. And they will make things look so close. They will mask these things, and they will be deceitful. But as Paul says, it's emptiness. Because really, when you get behind the mask, it never delivers. It never delivers. He's going to make a reference to this a little bit later on. We've read it already in verse 23 where Paul writes this regarding this ideology that was was spreading in Colossae. He says this, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom. The appearance of Sophia. In self-made religion. In self-abasement and the severe treatment of the body. But are of no value against fleshly Indulgence, they're empty. Now, he goes on to describe it further, and he, he, he goes on now to identify the standards b- by which this deceitful philosophy operates. He says that these deceitful philosophies come according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world. These are the two standards to which this deceitful philosophy conforms or operates, the two wells, you could say, from which errant ideology springs. The first one is easy to identify. Paul, Paul calls it the tradition of men. The tradition of men. That which is developed by men and is hand, handed down from generation to generation as gospel truth. But it originates in men. Jesus makes a reference to this with respect to the Pharisees back in Mark chapter 7 verses 18 to 13 where he refers several times to their traditions, their traditions, and they promoted their traditions at the expense of the commandment of God. It's also prevalent in Gentile traditions Paul makes a reference to this in Genesis or in 1st Peter Peter makes a reference to this in 1st 1 Peter 1:18 where he talks about the futile way of life inherited from forefathers referring to the sinful religions ideologies practices of the unredeemed the traditions of men that certainly is one of the wells from which this deceptive philosophy and ideology springs these entrenched religious and ethical ideas, and and certainly understand this, that sin hasn't made man irreligious. Now, sometimes that happens. You do have the atheists. But sin has made man incurably religious, but all in the wrong direction, distorting and warping man's hunger for God. And so man, in his unredeemed state becomes the promoter of all kinds of religions. And he is sincere in that. He's passionate in that. He's convicting in that. He demands much of himself even in that. Paul refers to the self-abasement, the punishment of oneself in in some of these religious practices and you could even say it's conservative in its ideology it wants to preserve what was received from the fathers but it's not completely true and so it's therefore dangerous paul identifies a second spring from which this deceitful philosophy comes he calls it the elementary principles of the world the elementary principles of the world Now, this is a more challenging phrase to to interpret. The the word which we translate as elementary principles, the Greek word, can be defined in one of three general ways. First of all, the word elementary principles was used to refer to the fundamentals of learning, the ABCs of learning. In fact, this term was used for the alphabet, for setting one letter after another. And in, a, in that sense, the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 5, verse 12, we've looked at that text already in our series, Paul, or, or the writer of Hebrews, states that some there in the Hebrew church need to be taught, once again, the elementary principles of the oracles of God, referring to the ABCs. The, the term also could refer to elements in the physical world. And so, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10 and chapter 3 verse 12, Peter uses this term to describe what's going to happen in the cataclysmic ultimate day of the Lord. The elementary principles will be burned up. The elementary materials of this world, the the ancients would talk about earth and and water and wind and fire. Those are those elementary principles that will all be consumed there at the end of of this present world. But there's a third definition, and I think it's important to note this. It has an important contribution to make to our understanding of ideas. And that third possibility for understanding this term, the elementary principles of the world, is to see this as a reference to the spiritual beings that influence the world. Spiritual beings that influence the world. This world. In fact, if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, you'll note that it translates elementary principles as elemental spirits, referencing this idea that what Paul is referring to here in the second spring from which deceitful philosophy arises is, is not just from the tradition of men, but also from supernatural sources. help to us in this is going to Galatians. You remember that the book of Galatians confronts many of the same ideas with a slightly different flavor, but there too, Paul to the Galatian churches has to confront them on being bewitched by ideas that were not consistent with the gospel. And in chapter 4, verse 3, he writes this. He says, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Same word that's used there for elemental things is used for elementary elementary principles in in, in Colossians 2 verse 8. And, And then he goes into greater detail a few verses later in chapter 4 of Galatians verses 8 to 11 when he says this. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? There's the word again, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. We don't have time to go into Galatians 4 in depth, but it's it's a solid reason to, to believe that Paul here is referring not just to human traditions, but now he's getting to something that is beyond human tradition to the spiritual forces that are responsible for some of these ideas. We must understand that the ideologies that we come in contact today are not just human in origin. Yes, they may come from human messengers and in books written with human hands, but there is something much more sinister involved. We must understand this. In the battle over the mind, we are not just confronted by other human minds. There is a spiritual battle that is much greater, much more sinister, and very real. Paul emphasizes that the world of ideas is not disconnected from the spiritual domain of darkness. We see that elsewhere, for example, in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. He says explicitly that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In reality, our struggle will not be against the tradition of men. Instead, it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We must recognize what is at stake and often the gullibility of christians when it comes to ideas is in part due to this this prevailing notion number 1 that humans are really not that bad it, even among christians and so picking up a book by a, an unbeliever or listening to some kind of seminar, there's often this naivete, this openness, this belief, well, this person just means well by it. And so I just accept it. I, I, I turn my discernment off and just enjoy without listening and evaluating and comparing. Or what's even worse the gullibility of of Christians in thinking that the spiritual realm is generally uninfluential in this world. If you remember from the preface to C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters, he deals with this. He says there's two problems among Christians today. One is that they're either obsessed with demons, or number two, they think they don't exist. And, And that kind of thinking, Ignoring Paul's teaching here in Ephesians and in Colossians, Colossians leads us to a defenselessness, a gullibility, a naivete. We let the the, the doors down uh, in the in the fortress of our minds, and that is so dangerous. Paul writes to these Colossians and to us, and says, "See to it that no one takes you captive to this empty." deceitful philosophy that is based upon human tradition and the doctrines of demons. But then right at the end, he gets to the matchless standard. He pulls us all back to where we ought to be. The very last phrase of this verse is so very important. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive according to these things, rather than according to Christ. Rather than according to Christ. You see, Paul did not say we should never be taken captive. He did not say that we are to to just resist those ideas which are demanding and those ideas which are controlling no, he said reject the demanding, controlling ideas which are from tradition of, the traditions of men and the, the, the depths of hell. But there are other ideas that are captivating. There are other ideas that are controlling. And Paul says be captivated by them. And those ideas he describes as being according to Christ. We are to be taken captive by the ideas that describe Christ, that present Christ to us, that originate in Christ. Those are the ideas that we all are to be captivated by. We are to be controlled by them and fiercely controlled by them. And why not? Paul's letter is about this very issue, that Christ is supreme. That with one so great and one so supreme, why wouldn't we be captivated by him? His whole letter is about that. If we just look in the near context, notice this. We are to be captivated by Christ because in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We are to be captivated by By Christ because in him all the deity, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We are to be captivated in Christ because in him you have been made complete and he is the head and ruler over all things. That's why we are to be captivated by Christ. That's why... By being captivated by him to this degree, those other ideas and ideologies will never stand a chance. By focusing on Christ and learning Christ and, and being captive to him, these other ideas will not in any way appear to be appealing. They, they will not even tempt us, they will not even come close. And so he writes to the Colossians this letter to say, what you really need is to be captive to Christ once again. It's not just to resist all those bad ideas that are out there. It is to become captive to Christ, and by being captivated by him, those other ideas will not find a foothold. Now, how do we respond how do we respond to all of this? Let me give you some, some final exhortations on this and in, in terms of our application of Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Number one, don't dance on the edges. Don't dance on the edges. Many Christians consider it to be a virtue to see how much common ground. They can find with error. It is so very popular today in the Western church, so much so that it's hard to distinguish the church from the world. They, they love to dance on the edges. Others are always looking for ways to try to redeem the culture, always try and find ways to, to, to find that good stuff in the culture that, that we can embrace. Always try to find ways to, to really look positively on the culture. There's so much negativity out there. I want to look at the culture positively. Others are just infatuated with whatever is new and trendy. They're, they're like the Athenians. In, in Acts 17 verse 21, the Athenians and the strangers who visited that city were, were used to spending their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And so many Christians are like that. Paul's command here is don't dance on the edges. You shouldn't be known by how far you want to push the envelope. That is no great characteristic of a Christian. What sets you apart as an example, as a model, is that you hold fast to the core. You're not found on the periphery. You have no desire to be there. You want to be with the solid doctrine. You want to be with the biblical teaching on Christ. You want to have nothing to do with being that first person who who advocates or embraces the the latest fad, the latest religious quasi-evangelical movement. And yet, as I said, in our day and age, so many love to be on the edges. Someone sent this to me just a a few days ago from the Gospel Coalition, a ministry that now prides itself on being on the edges. It was supposedly designed to bring Christians together to the core of Christianity, but today it's forcing or influencing Christians to the edges. And, And this kind of an idea... This, this tweet from the Gospel Coalition that says, it's more masculine to be attracted to men yet obedient to God than attracted to women and disobedient to God. Now, you read that and you go, what, what's trying to be said here? It is, it's true, but it's not. What are they trying to do with this? Why are they trying to, to get so close to the world and affirming homosexual attraction? Why are they trying to do that? They're trying to dance on the edges. And Paul would say to them, see to it that no one takes you captive to empty philosophy. Another one just came up today from Christianity Today, which even longer time ago decided it would dwell on the edges if not go further. Christianity Today, commenting on, of course, what you know from the news, the Possibility that Roe v. Wade will be overturned by the courts. Christianity Today, using uh, or referring to an article by Russell Moore, who's himself always on the edge nowadays, writes this Behind the Roe leak was a loss of trust in the justices or the public, writes Dr. Moore. The reason we have abortion at all is also because of a lost trust in communities and governments and religious bodies to care for women and children. Owen Strand, who preached with us just a couple of days ago, responded to this and says, no, the reason we have abortion at all is because men love the darkness. And yet today, if you just listen to Christian media, all kinds of outlets now Big evangelical outlets are trying to find a way to, 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 to be on the edge, to to reject abortion, to celebrate the possibility of overturning the legalized murder of babies, to at the same time trying to find a way to say, well, abortion is really not that bad. I like what Tertullian said almost 2,000 years ago. He said this, tell me, what is the sense of this itch for idle speculation. What does it prove? This useless affection of a fastidious curiosity, notwithstanding strong confidence of its assertions. It is highly appropriate that Thales, while his eyes were roaming the heavens in astronomical observation, should have tumbled into a well. This mishap may well serve to illustrate the fate of all who occupy themselves With the stupidities of philosophy. You dance on the edge, and your eyes will be off Christ, and you'll fall into a well. Number two, don't let your thoughts run wild. Don't let your thoughts run wild. Ideas do have consequences. I've referred to that many times throughout this series, but ideas also have roots, they have sources. They have origins. The thoughts that come into your head will not only, at some point, if you entertain them, lead to some kind of consequence. You will become captive to them, good or bad. But those thoughts also have roots. They came from somewhere, from some source. Don't take, therefore, these ideas for granted. Trace their source. In fact, this is really the discipline of of a well-trained mind. That when thoughts enter your mind, starting with the most basic thoughts about God, about our need, about God's solution to our need, to taking those thoughts into mind and, and examining where your thoughts come from, from where do they arise. But then working out from that as your mind is trained and disciplined, you start to do that practice with all kinds of thoughts to the point where you're, you're now able to quickly trace these ideas and say, okay, does this have a connection to Christ? Is this idea in some way connected w- with Jesus Christ in his glory, in his sufficiency, in his power, in his authority? Or does it come from the tradition of men and, and, and some kind of nefarious origin? Paul's warning t- to examine our thoughts as just as relevant today to the church in 2022 as it was for the Colossian church in 8062. We're to take every thought captive to ensure that we ourselves are captive to Christ. I've quoted this already during our time. It, it's a statement by Abraham Kuyper who says this, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest and there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Number three, don't add to the simplicity of the gospel. Don't add to the simplicity of the gospel. That's a major lesson that we draw from Paul in these verses here. The, the Colossians Heresy didn't attempt to discard the gospel of Jesus Christ. It sought to supplement it. And, and as I've said already, we as Christians can usually easily determine and reject that which is outright error. Atheism, pantheism, polytheism, and the list. We recognize those things from afar and, and we reject them. But the struggle that we have is in identifying the things that are added to the gospel. The syncretistic ideas. And those additions come slowly. Sometimes they come to us from those who wittingly seek to add to the gospel, and other times we may do it ourselves unwittingly. We add all kinds of little things to the gospel message. Things that we take from our experience things we take from our conditioning, things we take from the world, things we hear on, in the media, and we slowly keep adding them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul in this text admonishes us to continually fight to remove those barnacles. They don't belong there. And they threaten the simplicity of of the gospel. Paul talks about that, for example, in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of Christ. The purity, the simplicity. And understand this, while there are those who will seek to promote ideas which will try to take away from the gospel... In many cases, especially in our religious world today, where religion is celebrated, there will be many efforts to add to the true gospel. And we must be on our guard. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. When we hear preachers talking of divine things in a style savoring more of metaphysical subtlety than of gospel plainness, when the seeking sinner cannot find out the way of salvation because of their philosophical jargon, may we not with justice suspect that the preacher does not know the gospel and conceals his culpable ignorance behind a veil of rhetorical magniloquence. That means high-sounding language. Term fits, doesn't it? Surely if the man understood a matter so important to all his readers as the way of salvation, he would feel constrained to tell it out in words which all might comprehend. We have nothing to be ashamed of with a simple gospel. And that will be the test. Whether we maintain the simplicity of the gospel in a, in a world and in an environment which constantly is trying not necessarily just to 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 reject the gospel wholeheartedly, but to add all kinds of other things to it, and believe me, that that is going on in high gear these days. And that leads to the fourth and final point: believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what makes the difference for today and for all eternity. And when we think of this gospel, we turn even just to the words of Paul in the context that follows where he writes, when you were dead in your transgressions and with the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross and when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through Christ. Now, for those of you who are in Christ this text wonderfully reminds us of what Christ did for us what the Father did through Christ on the cross And, and there was uh, that, that metaphorical list of, of debts that we had racked up over all of our lives, every single sin, every individual sin recorded in the annals of, of our past, of our entire life, and, and put in the, the box that belonged to us, that was our debt. And, and that would be the record which would condemn us to hell for eternity, But in that one beautiful act, God takes his son and he sacrifices him there on the cross. And above the head of Jesus, as would be above the head of any crucified person, would be a list of the crimes. And above the head of Jesus, the father nails our record of sin. And says he will pay for it. That is what Christ willingly did for us to take that certificate of debt and pay it fully, pay it all, every single sin, the millions of them. Now, if you're not in Christ, that certificate of debt remains as of right now, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, if you have not come to know him as the fullness of all wisdom and knowledge, if you have not come to know him as all of deity dwelling in bodily form, if you have not come to know him as the dying Savior and resurrected Lord, that certificate of debt remains against you. And if you walk out of this room tonight and you die on Roscoe Boulevard or you die in your sleep, that certificate of debt will be used as a faithful testimony to your eternal damnation. And it is true and it is righteous and you deserve what that testimony pronounces against you. You will have no ability to deny. Everything will be provided in vivid detail and everything will be supported by an abundance of testimony. That will be you. Let me also tell you, if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, if you have not not yet recognized your need for his righteousness, if you have not yet believed in him as your only hope, that it is only he who can pay that debt that you have no chance but he did and can if you believe in that. I want to hold out to you the hope with all the, the guarantee of the word of God that if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross for your sin to pay your debt then you can believe also that the Father has taken that certificate and has nailed it to the cross of Christ and that by believing in Jesus you have life you have freedom and that that certificate has been removed do not leave tonight without knowing where that certificate stands do not leave tonight dear friend Don't leave. You have to do business with God. And he awaits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that he has paid the certificate of all of those who can come to you at this moment to enter the throne room of grace and that it has been removed from us once and for all. We're thankful that the gospel has taken us captive. We're thankful that it has liberated us from captivity to the foolish ideas of this world. But we also recognize that it is easy for us to look back. It is easy for us to, to return for moments. And so we ask that you would, in our eyes, make Christ even more glorious and take us even more captive to his glory. And we ask this in his matchless name. Amen.